Daniel chapter 6, a, uh, a very common biblical story. There are a few stories through the Bible that uh, if you grew up in church, you are likely awfully familiar with Noah's Ark, David and Goliath. These are stories that even people outside of uh, the church, someone like me who didn't really come across um, any serious form of Christianity my whole life until 22, but I'm sure that I would have at some stage heard of things like Noah's Ark and possibly even Daniel in the lion's den. And there is a, a warning that we should have before we begin today. The warning is uh, to remember the context that this was written, that Daniel and the lion's den is uh, not primarily, though it can be helpful in this way, but it's not primarily a sort of moral pathway that we are to emulate so that the takeaway is a sort of dare to be a Daniel type theme where we sort of have this great supernatural faith and we will be preserved from all of the trials in our life as sometimes sermons on Daniel 6 can lead toward. Let's remember that the context is that this is written to Jewish exiles. These are people who have been displaced, taken out of their home, and they are now under foreign occupation. In fact, the, the, the very nation that displaced them and brought them to their own nation has now been conquered. So they're sort of under this double foreign occupation. They're onto their second uh, conquering nation. And the book of Daniel is meant to be a comfort to these people. It's meant to be a comfort to remind them that God is still in control, that all of these stories sort of show this heavenly realm where God is the master orchestrator of all things, where he's totally in control. Despite all of the evil rulers and kingdoms that arise in this world, there is one sovereign God and one indestructible kingdom that all of God's people can find refuge in regardless of their circumstances. And that is the lens that we should look at this through. The events of Daniel 6 in particular are just part of this ongoing story where God is demonstrating his superiority over all of the inferior kingdoms of this world. It is an awfully comforting story to us when we look at the, the God in whom Daniel trusted in as the same God that we trust in. So let's uh, look at Daniel 6 now. We'll read through it, and I just encourage you to have that lens about um, this text, which is look to the God of Daniel, look to the God who is sovereign over all of these circumstances and whom we can find comfort in. Let's work our way through Daniel 6, and then we will um, draw out uh, some applications from the text as we... Uh, go over it after reading it through in its entirety. Daniel 6 uh, verses 1 to 28. This is God's word. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom and over them three high officials of whom Daniel was one to whom these satraps should give account so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. 
Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel, and he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve, continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den. And the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him and sleep fled from him. Then at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him and also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. 
He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. This is God's word. Let's work our way through Daniel 6 now with these lenses of God's sovereign providence over Daniel and his situation. If we break it down into the the six scenes of the story here, verses 1 to 3 form the first scene. And in verses 1 to 3, we see just the context and Daniel's place in this new kingdom. So remember that the Babylonian kingdom has been taken over by the Medo-Persian Empire. And uh, all of the officials just basically get transferred, or a lot of them get transferred across to the new kingdom. Daniel is one of these guys. Remember that Daniel is in his 80s now, at least. He's, he's, an, he's an old guy. Uh, he's spent the majority of his life in captivity in Babylon. Now he is serving the second conquering nation that um, after Babylon completely destroyed his hometown. And he is uh, recognized as this prominent official. Uh, We read that Darius, who is this um, king of Medo-Persia, sets 120 satraps, which are just um, officials, royal officials. And then over the 120 satraps, you have a good sort of hierarchy where there's then three high officials over the satraps. And Daniel is going to be one of these high officials. So from all of the leaders throughout this strong empire, and this empire is like a combination of like all of the world powers today of kind of the European Union, China and Russia somehow working together and then conquering the world. uh, And they take the best of the best to serve. And Daniel is seen as the best of the best. Verse 3, he has an excellent spirit in him. We'll see in the next few verses after this that Daniel is trustworthy, he's honest, he's reliable. And so the situation here is that Daniel is recognized as a wonderfully uh, helpful person to have overseeing all of this empire. And these admirable traits of Daniel then set the scene for these jealous officials who realize that they just can't compete with someone of Daniel's caliber. There's just no way. You know, the, the person in your office place who just does everything right and you realize as long as they're around, there's no way I'm ever getting a promotion. They're just too good. And Daniel is very much that guy. And a promotion for Daniel means either a demotion or just staying stagnant for these other people. So this sets the scene for them trying to tear him down. And this leads us to the next scene. If we look at verses four to nine, this is where we see the scene of these frustrated foes, where in verses four to nine, uh, we get the picture of these wicked people who try to bring Daniel down. And there are two main parts to this section here. One is the evil plans of these frustrated foes. The second is looking more closely at Daniel's impeccable character. So let's look firstly at Daniel's impeccable character. In verse 4, we read that these high officials are trying to find grounds for complaint against Daniel. And notice uh, that reality hits them where they say, we can't find any ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. There's just no way we can find any ground where we can bring a charge against him because he's just perfect. 
in his capacity to lead. He's faultless. Daniel has impeccable character. Even by the standards of this Medo-Persian empire, Daniel is uh, faithful, unerring, and faultless. And just to apply this to, to our context now, this demonstrates that regardless of the cultural climate, regardless of where you are in the world and what time of the world you are, there are certain character traits that are always recognized as virtuous and as good. There is this objective standard, like the objective standard of morality that God has given. There are these objective traits that regardless of where you are, whether you're in 6th century BC Babylon or in 21st century Tuggeranong, there are these character traits that are recognized as good. So loyalty to your employer will always be recognized as good. Honesty, integrity will always be recognized as good. Why would anyone ever say, I'm so sick of that guy. He's too honest. He's too, he has too much integrity. Like, of course, maybe people look at someone as a goody two-shoes and an evil person doesn't like it. But across the board, honesty, integrity, um, gentleness are all recognized as virtuous. True generosity is a faultless trait wherever you are. So there are these certain traits that are timeless and they are transcultural regardless of where you are uh, in, uh, insofar as what is recognized as good. So for us, God's people should demonstrate these character traits. This is similar to the Bible reading that Tobias read out. And just a, a chapter before that Bible reading in, in 1 Peter 2, Peter says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they accuse you of wrong, when they slander you, they may see your good deeds and be put to shame. He still, Peter is still believing that there are good deeds that we should have as Christians that people will still recognize, regardless of how morality has shifted, regardless of the fact that now Christians are seen as immoral, a lot of the time bigots, because we hold to things like a traditional view of marriage and, and gender and regardless of those sorts of things, if we think of character traits like honesty, gentleness, generosity, integrity, these are always recognized as good. So I believe this is what you know Peter is referring to, that we should have these good traits about us so that even when people slander us, in the end, they will be put to shame. There is something terribly wrong if you are a professing follower of Jesus and you are dishonest unreliable and untrustworthy. That's a terrible thing. It brings the name of Christ into disrepute. We should be honest, trustworthy and reliable. And Daniel demonstrates this. So because of Daniel's impeccable character, these frustrated foes, they just can't find any way to bring a charge against him. And the only hope for them is to create an environment where Daniel's allegiance to God is going to be seen as something wicked and punishable. That's the only thing they can do. They have to change the atmosphere, change the environment, so that Daniel's allegiance to God would get him into trouble. So we read in verse 5, this is what they say, we're not going to find any ground for complaint against Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. They have to create an environment where allegiance to Yahweh is something that is wicked and punishable. And 
just as another application, may that also be the case for us, where the only grounds that anyone could find for fault against us would be because of our unshakable allegiance to Christ. And that would be the grounds for fault in us, in we bigoted Christians. May it also be that our allegiance to God would be demonstrated not by a bumper sticker, although people don't really do that anymore, perhaps more contextual, is not by a social media post saying how much we love Jesus, but rather may our allegiance to God be demonstrated by good character and an otherworldly hope that is bold in our profession of Christ. May these traits of honesty, integrity, reliability be present in us, and that would demonstrate our allegiance to our great God. If we look at the second part of this second scene now, the wicked plan of these frustrated foes, from verse 6, uh, the high officials and the satraps, they come by agreement. Literally, this means they basically, it's this idea of they pounce on uh, the king and on Daniel. So there's uh, collusion here. They say, everyone is in agreement, King Darius. You need to make a decree that it's clear that you, Darius, you are the only one that people should come to. Don't let people go to any other god or person for their petitions. You're Darius. You've just overtaken the Babylonian Empire. They're appealing to his ego and saying, hey, make sure that no one makes any petition or prayer to anyone other than you. This is solely to bring Daniel down. Of course, they really could care less about King Darius. They really don't care about uh, the empire. They care about their place in the empire and they realize that Daniel is a threat. So the whole purpose for this is to bring Daniel down. So they deceitfully come to the king and they make this request that no petition, no prayer, no request be made to any god or man other than Darius. So this demonstrates that Daniel has clearly demonstrated a pattern, an unshakable commitment to prayer, so that when these people realize that they can't fault him in his commitment to serving the kingdom, they realize that this Daniel can't go without prayer. Oh, this is so easy. Daniel's always going to pray. He's a man of prayer. Let's bring him down that way. That's the way that we can bring him down. Daniel's a sucker for praying to his God. And that's the environment they create. So they appeal to the ego of Darius. King Darius signs the decree. And now the plan is set to catch Daniel in a moment of disobedience to this new and idolatrous law. And this leads us to the next scene, which is verse 10. Now this uh, we could spend a whole time on verse 10 and what this shows about Daniel. This is the seed of Daniel's undisrupted discipline. Let's read through verse 10 here. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Just think, like imagine if you were in that situation where let's say the government changes overnight to say, if anyone, and we've got the surveillance now to know when you're praying, if anyone prays for 30 days, I mean, how many uh, Christians, you know, would even be frustrated by that? But let alone that, 
if, if anyone prays for 30 days, you're going to die. And what does Daniel do? He prays and he, give th- he gives thanks. Thank you, Lord, for this day that you have made. I mean, we don't know what he actually prayed, but clearly he's giving thanks to God. Despite his circumstances where he is facing imminent death, he probably knows what's happening. He's ready to face the sword or the lion's mouth and he gives thanks to God. It's incredible. See, what, what changes here? What changes here in Daniel after the decree happens? Nothing. Basically, nothing changes for Daniel. He is in an already established pattern. We read, as he had done previously, or some translations finish with saying, as was his custom. He was already in the discipline of prayer and he just has an undisrupted discipline so that even when he is sure that he's probably going to die, what does he do? I'll just continue and give thanks to the Lord. It's just like muscle memory for Daniel, this posture of prayer. He had such a resolve that we read about in Daniel 1.8, where Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the king's food and drink. He had such a resolve in his allegiance to Yahweh that his discipline is just undisrupted regardless of his context, regardless of his circumstances. Daniel was in such a rhythm of prayer. Now, there are two applications for us. From, from this passage, of many that we could uh, use. First is don't wait until a time of crisis to seek God. Don't wait until a time of crisis to seek God. It wasn't the time of crisis that made Daniel a disciplined man. It was the fact that Daniel was a disciplined man that then sustained him through the time of, pri- through the time of crisis. So don't wait until a crisis. If something dramatically changes... If, if new laws come out, of course, we're going to be led to prayer. But if something dramatically changes in your spiritual discipline simply because uh, there's something threatening to you, it's a really dangerous sign because the likelihood is that when it settles down, you will likewise cool off from your spiritual discipline and you'll just return back to wherever it was that you were. So don't wait until a time of crisis, but rather engage in these disciplines this is why it's such a focus for for our community and at the forefront of my mind because uh, disciples are disciplined that's why the words are connected we are disciplined people disciplined in our times of prayer disciplined in, in our times of reading the word disciplined in gathering together so that When suffering comes, so that when the crisis comes, which it most certainly will, there's a few things that we are promised in Scripture, one of which is that we will suffer for following Christ. We follow a suffering servant, and when that happens, it will be the discipline that we had that that keeps us undisrupted in those moments. The second application from what we see here in Daniel's response is that Christians are neither anarchists nor compromisers. We are neither anarchists nor compromisers. We're neither rebellious to the point of rebelling uh, against uh, the government just because we like rebellion, nor are we compromisers. Uh, This passage is very similar 
to Daniel chapter 3. You remember the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I think it's intentional. There's an author's intent to have two of the same stories uh, in a similar way where they are faced with the sword and they show the same resolve. But notice that neither they nor Daniel, they don't throw a fit and have a protest. They are calm in their resolve and they most certainly do not compromise. They do not compromise on their allegiance to Yahweh. Daniel here simply continues in his pattern of faithfulness. And this is a wonderful principle for us. In the face of whatever persecution may come, we don't necessarily rush to get our placards out and start having a protest. Nor do we uncritically accept laws which threaten our allegiance. Nor do we just uncritically accept whatever comes. We are faithful followers of Christ who go about our lives with undisrupted discipline toward our glorious Saviour, where neither anarchists nor are we compromisers. And the only way to remain on that path of obedience is to have a rock-solid trust in a sovereign God who calls us to trust in Him, regardless of the circumstances. The only way to stay on that path of not leaning toward uh, rebellion and anarchy and not leaning toward compromise is to have a rock-solid trust in the sovereign God who is behind all of the things of this day so that we know, regardless of what happens, neither height nor depth nor anything else nor creation shall be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing will separate us. We stay faithful to what God calls us to. We move to the next scene now in verses 11 to 18. So we've had, just to summarize the scenes, uh, the introduction, the setting of uh, Daniel's context. Uh, we've had uh, the frustrated foes and then these two parts to that scene of Daniel's impeccable character and then the wicked plans. And then we get to Daniel's undisrupted discipline. And now we get to the unjust sentence in verses 11 to 18. Uh, we see the plan of these frustrated foes. Initially, it seems like it works out, right? Like they catch Daniel. Uh, they find Daniel in his private place of residence, making his prayers to Yahweh. Now, it's not as if, so when we read this, clearly they sought him out. Uh, but we need to be careful with the picture we see where we read that Daniel went to his place uh, with the windows open toward Jerusalem. It's not as if Daniel is kind of this ostentatious man showing off his piety and just out the window, booming his prayers to everyone so that everyone can see how religious he is. It's not like that. Neither should we have a picture of uh, a cowardly Daniel staying at home. Remember, Daniel just remains undisrupted in his discipline. He neither hides nor does he protest. But these people specifically seek him out. So while Daniel continues steadfastly in his allegiance to God, his frustrated foes continue just as steadfastly in their allegiance to destroying him. And that's what happens here. These enemies, they lie in wait. They bring Daniel to the king and they say, Oh, king, didn't you sign an injunction? 
but said that if anyone makes a petition to anyone else other than you, they will be thrown into the den of lions. And the king agrees. And then they say, well, this Daniel, again, one of the exiles, one of these foreigners, he pays no attention to you, O king. Now, as often happens in uh, deceit from evil people, uh, they lie and grossly exaggerate in their accusations. They say, uh, they try and paint a picture of this rebellious Daniel. They say, he doesn't care about you, king. Obviously, that's not right. What did we read at the start? Daniel was distinguished above everyone else. He clearly cares about the kingdom. He's a hard worker. And that's why the king wanted to make him the prime minister, basically, to set him above everyone else. Daniel pays, pays very close attention to the matter of the king. But that will, of course, never cause him to disobey God and to compromise his allegiance to Yahweh. And this is where the king becomes trapped. Notice that King Darius really doesn't want to do away with Daniel, whether it was because he had a very close relationship with him or whether it was because he saw how great Daniel was and how beneficial he was. So Darius feels trapped. In verse 14, he is distressed and he sets his mind to deliver Daniel. But despite the efforts of the king to find a way around the legal system, uh, King Darius is stuck. So he wishes Daniel well. He says, all right, uh, may your God deliver you. The stone is rolled over the den. And that should be the end of the story, uh, had it not been for God himself and his divine intervention. We get to the next scene, God's miraculous preservation in verses 19 to 23. So after spending the night fasting without any distractions, uh, the king rises at the break of dawn and he finds Daniel completely unharmed. And Daniel then responds as the king cries out. And Daniel says in verse 22, Oh, my God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths. And they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. And we read that the king was exceedingly glad. And then notice verse 23, toward the end of verse 23, we read, Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. Because he had trusted, in spite of all of his circumstances, because he had trusted in his God. Now, this does not mean, in spite of some of uh, the sort of word of faith movement, that if someone dies, that means they didn't trust in the Lord enough. It's not saying that Daniel had a supernatural trust that only he had, and we just need to attain to that level of trust and will, of course, never get sick and never die. That's obviously not the case. God has chosen to glorify himself through the death of many faithful servants in his time who have trusted in him. So the point isn't to think that Daniel had a supernatural trust and we simply need to just look inward and muster up the same level of trust. The point, of course, is to look outward to the God in whom Daniel trusted in. The one who controls all things and who is completely trustworthy, who has demonstrated his trust because he did not withhold his own son, but freely gave him up for us. So, of course, we trust in him. And when we orient ourselves back to the object of our trust, we find an unusual 
peace, the kind of peace that characterizes Daniel here. I'm reminded of uh, the story of John Payton, whom we went over a few months ago and his trust. And I'm reminded of when he uh, was in Vanuatu, which then was called New Hebrides, and he was being hunted by these savages who were trying to kill him. And he hid up a tree and in that tree, he was praying to the Lord and he recorded in his diary afterwards what happened then. And just read the words of this and look at the trust that he has. My heart rose up to the Lord Jesus. I saw him watching all the scene. My peace came back to me like a wave from God. I realized that I was immortal till my master's work with me was done. The assurance came to me as if a voice out of heaven had spoken that not a musket would be fired to wound us, not a club prevailed to strike us without the permission of Jesus Christ, who is all power in heaven and on earth. He rules all nature, animate and inanimate, and restrains even the savage of the South Seas. That is a trust in the Lord, that we are, in a sense, immortal until the day which God has written before the foundation of the world, that we should then enter into his glory. And no one in this world is able to cut that short or prolong it. God has numbered our days. And this is trust in our sovereign Lord. Not specifically that we will be spared from death, but that God's perfect will cannot be thwarted. His perfect will cannot be thwarted in any way. So whatever comes to pass is good. Whatever comes to pass is good. Though we can't see it now, we know that eventually we will see the goodness. All things will make sense. He is able to make all things work together for good. Now, finally, our last scene, the justice, and then another doxology, words of praise. Notice uh, how many times we see uh, seemingly pagan rulers in Daniel just praising Yahweh in the end. So we see the reversal of what the wicked enemies desired to happen. And it's a confronting scene. Like, read this scene. I mean, uh, not only are the men thrown into uh, the den of lions, but actually their wives and their children. And they are torn to pieces before they even reach the bottom. It's meant to be a graphic picture. It's weird that this is such a popular children's story, isn't it? Like, this is the end. It's meant to be a graphic picture for us. It's meant to be a picture of the final end of those who oppose God's work. See, one of the overarching themes of this story is, as uh, Sinclair Ferguson, our favorite Scotsman, puts it, the hand, this is the overarching theme, the hand of the kingdom of darkness trying to annihilate the kingdom of God. That's the theme here. It's the hand of the kingdom of darkness trying to annihilate the kingdom of God. These men here in Daniel 6 are simply doing what the evil one, the devil, seeks to do all of the time to God's people, which is to steal, kill and destroy. That's what's happening here is these people are simply doing what the evil one always seeks to do. The demonic powers of the kingdom of darkness attempting to, to destroy the kingdom of God and his servants. And we see the graphic result of those who are led by the kingdom of darkness to uh, oppose themselves against the kingdom of God. And it influences their families. 
But as we've seen already through Daniel, the kingdom of God is indestructible and all those who attempt to set themselves up against it will be destroyed, will be crushed. So this is Darius's conclusion. Listen to this conclusion in verse 26. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God enduring forever. Isn't this very similar to Nebuchadnezzar's decree at the end of chapter 3 after his account of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego? Nebuchadnezzar says, I make a decree. Any people, nation or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins. It's really interesting and strange that chapter 6 here is almost a fulfillment of what Nebuchadnezzar said in chapter 3, that anyone who speaks against this God will be torn limb from limb and their houses will be laid in ruins. So Darius goes on with his proclamation. He says, his kingdom, God's kingdom, will never be destroyed and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. Regardless of the opposition experienced to us or to anyone else in history, God's kingdom will never be destroyed. Never. Indestructible. And we are people of the kingdom. The Most High God is in control. Now, as we uh, turn to take the Lord's Supper, the story of Daniel demonstrates this beautiful picture of an unshakable resolve in one's allegiance to God. Daniel is a great man of faith. And there are moral lessons that we obviously can take from this. He is a great man of faith. I mean, interestingly, Daniel could actually fit a lot of the messianic description that we find in Isaiah 11, where you might be familiar with that passage, where Isaiah 11 speaks of the coming Messiah, the branch from the stump of Jesse, and the spirit of wisdom and understanding, uh, the spirit of counsel and might, knowledge and fear of the Lord. This certainly uh, describes Daniel in many ways, certainly not saying that he's the Messiah. Don't get that picture. But Daniel really reflects a lot of these character traits. And when we look at Daniel's life, we actually see many similarities with the life of our Savior, Jesus. Think about Daniel being found to be blameless. That's what we read in this passage. Daniel was found blameless before the Lord. So Jesus was blameless in every way possible. As Daniel was unjustly accused of wrong, he was unjustly accused of wrong. Jesus is, of course, unjustly accused and sentenced. As Daniel intercedes for his people, which we'll see in chapter 9 in this beautiful prayer of intercession, so Jesus constantly lives to make intercession for the saints. As Daniel was given the sentence of death and even the stone being rolled over the den, and we see Jesus enter into death and the stone rolled over the tomb. With all of the similarities, there are, of course, a, a, a number of fundamental differences that help shape us as we come to the bread and the cup. Daniel was found blameless, but Daniel is still born with the stain of Adam's sin. Daniel is not sinless. Christ is sinless. 
in every way, never once sinned, was never angry in a sinful way, was never disobedient, completely spotless. Daniel was accused by the foreigners, whereas Jesus is accused by his very own people, the people he was coming to save. Daniel could intercede tirelessly for his people, but he can never atone for sin. Only Jesus can. And Daniel was spared from death, whereas our Saviour entered fully into an excruciating death, an excruciating death that would make being mauled to death by lions seem far more pleasant than hanging upon a cross in excruciating fashion, in utter humiliation and taking the wrath of God upon himself. There is one faithful man, the God-man, whom we look to. Daniel is a great example. Christ alone is the one whom we look to as our saviour. Uh, I'm not sure uh, what uh, state society will, will be in, in in the coming years, but it seems likely that um, the trajectory we're going on is one where we will need to have this resolve, this strong resolve of undisrupted discipline to be willing to risk losing our jobs, even potentially death, should that happen. It seems unlikely, but you never know. And of course, the only way that we will be sustained in that is by an unshakable trust in our sovereign God, not to look inside, but to look outside to our sovereign God and to remember the example of Christ so that regardless of whatever suffering we have, regardless of whatever persecution, Christ has taken upon himself the punishment that we deserve so that we might receive, so that we might be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the son of his love. And that is the fuel for us as we continue to be faithful disciples of Jesus. We look to the example of Christ, our Savior, who has stood in our place, who has taken the wrath of God, which we deserve upon himself. We now get to bask in the love of the Father for all eternity. And that hope makes the suffering of this time unworthy to be compared with that hope, with the glory that will be revealed to us.